Please pray with me. Father, we uh, bless your holy name. Um, we thank you that, um, that you are strong um, when we are weak, that your uh, strength is truly perfected in our weakness. And Lord, we thank you that, um, that you are Lord of all, that you are uh, sovereign over all, that you are um, on your throne, that there is uh, nothing that slips by you. And Lord, we acknowledge your sovereignty. Lord, we also this morning acknowledge your justice, that you are a just God, that you are a fair God, that you um, give us us, um, um, deserve actually because of Jesus. And we thank you, God, that you are a loving God and that uh, no matter um, what uh, befalls us, um, Lord, that we can look to the cross of Christ and be reminded of your justice, uh, that you killed your son. Uh, You poured out your wrath on Jesus so that we would never experience your wrath. We thank you that all you've got left for us is love. Sometimes it's loving discipline, but it's just love. And we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, as we continue to go through this uh, glorious book of Job, Lord, I pray, Spirit, Holy Spirit, that you would, um, um, that you would change us, uh, that we would have a, a greater understanding of uh, your sovereignty and your character and your loving kindness that would just drive us to want to live our lives in um, joyful submission to you, not to gain anything, but because we already possess everything in Christ Jesus. And God, I, I need you this morning, as always, just pray, God, that you would protect your word that you would uh, give me uh, power to proclaim it and uh, that, um, that I would stand behind it um, and, uh, and uh, not try to stand in front of it in any way. We love you. We ask that you'd have your way with us here this morning. God's people said, amen. amen. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Yeah, doing good. It's a great Sunday. Um, it's a great Sunday to be going through the book of Job. I'm thoroughly enjoying this. This is our, our fifth Sunday out of eight Sundays going through the book of Job. And um, we, we've got a, a new character on board, a guy by the name of Lihu. We're going to um, examine Elihu a little bit. Has anybody read Job and wondered who this Elihu dude is and where he came from and, and what he's up to? Um, I, I have. And, and I've got some thoughts. They're not going to be inspired thoughts. Uh, you're going to get my thoughts on, on who Elihu is and what the purpose is based on my study. Um, titled the sermon, uh, The Justice of God. Um, another way of putting it is, um, is God fair? Is God just? Uh, maybe another title would be, does Job sin in his suffering? We know that he doesn't suffer because of his sin, but we can ask the question, does he sin in the midst of his suffering? And um, there's been times where I think I feel like I've been treated unfairly. Um, I've, back when I was in high school, I, had a, I drove a, uh, a powder blue Firebird. And um, it just looked fast. And even though I would exceed the speed limit a lot, I do believe there was times I got pulled over just because of the way I looked in the car that I was driving. There was times when uh, my kids all played sports, and there was times where I remember Mitch or Joey um, playing soccer or basketball and totally taking somebody out, like in front of the net or under the basket, totally taking somebody out. 
and uh, the ref would pull, blow the whistle and call a foul, and my boys would go, didn't do anything. You know, it's on the camera. Everybody in the audience saw it, and they said, this just isn't fair. What did I do? So I don't know about you. Have you ever been treated unfairly? Has anybody ever accused you of doing something that you really didn't do? Or accused you of saying something you really didn't say? Have you ever been penalized in a sport when, in fact, you didn't touch the other person? Maybe you are one that you've exercised every day. You have ate healthy for years, yet sickness has befallen you. You've got a hurt leg. You got plantar fasciitis, worse yet, maybe cancer. You've done everything you could to take care of your body, but, but some reason that God determined to afflict you. It doesn't seem fair. Have you managed your finances wisely only to have someone steal from you and to cause you to file bankruptcy? I think we've all at times um, doubted um, the fairness of God. Why do hard things or bad things happen to God's people? And that's kind of the, the question that's being answered all the way throughout the book of Job. We've been blazing through this poetic drama um, over the last four weeks. And today we're in chapter 37, uh, 32 through 37. And as you already know, this is a story of a man whose life was turned upside down in a matter of minutes. He lost his business. He lost his health. His wife had a breakdown, and to make everything worse, uh, he had to bury all 10 of his kids. This is very much a story about a man that is like you and I, that we're not immune, actually. Um, there's, there's no goodness, inherent goodness in us, or even um, goodness as a result of Christ that would prevent us from the suffering that Job incurred on this earth. None of us are beyond that. In the first two chapters of Job, we get a glimpse behind the heavenly curtain, that the, the heavenly curtain got pulled back and we witnessed a conversation between God and his adversary, Satan. Satan was looking to torment a follower of, of, of God. He, he wasn't just looking for somebody to torment, he was looking for a follower of the triune God. God offered up his choice servant, the, the most righteous man in the land, Job. There was no one like him on the earth, the text says. He was blameless. He was upright. He was a man who feared God and turned from evil. I mean, he was, he was on God's hall of fame. I mean, he was a man after God's own heart. Job was a genuine believer. Make no mistake about it. He wasn't a pagan. He believed in the triune God. He is a man that we will see in heaven. And we'll, be, we'll get to ask him and ask God all the unanswered questions we have about suffering. And Satan told the Lord, when the, the Lord offered up Job and said, here's Job, my servant, have you considered him? And Job said this to God. God Job said, excuse me, uh, Satan said this to God. I'm going to get these characters all mixed up. It's like a drama. Um, God said, Satan said this to, to, to God. Of course Job worships you. Why would he not worship you? You've put a hedge around him. You've blessed him with 10 healthy kids. You've blessed him with his own health. You've given him an amazing business. He's got more livestock than anybody in the land. And he's got notoriety. He's got a reputation. Why would he not worship you? 
And Satan says, take all this away from him, God, and he will curse you to, his, to your face. That's the storyline. That's where it started out. And then we see that Satan actually did afflict Job. That God gave Satan access and told um, Satan that he could take everything from Job except for his life. And remarkably, Satan or Job lost virtually everything of value to him. And then he worshipped God. Losing everything, he fell down and he worshipped God. And then he responded to his rightfully distraught wife. He said this to her, shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And in all of this, Job did not sin, it says. His three friends traveled from afar. You know the story. His three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, traveled from afar. They got word of, his, of this calamity that befell Job. And as they were approaching Job sitting in a trash heap um, uh, in silence, they, it says that they saw that his suffering was great. And they sat with him for seven days and seven nights, and they wept, and they grieved with him. Then in chapter 3, we see Job stand up and speak for the very first time. And speak he did, he lamented. He lamented a, a heartfelt lament that he was um, asking God, why did you allow me to be conceived? Why did you allow me to be born if you knew that you were going to afflict me with this type of suffering? An honest lament to, a, uh, to his God whom he followed. And then after that, we see for the next 22 chapters, we see three cycles of conversations where Job's friends break their silence, and they basically hammer Job. Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad speaks, Job responds. Zophar speaks, Job responds. And that goes on for three cycles. And there is one primary message that all three friends um, espouse, and they say this. Uh, they've, got a, they've got a theology of retribution. They've got a theology that says, what you sow, you will always reap. Now, there is a proverbial principle that what we sow, we will reap. That is a universal truth that happens most of the time, but it's not a promise. And these men said that, Job, because of your suffering, there must be a hidden sin. There must be something that you did to cause this suffering. And Job, for 22 chapters, declared his innocence. And, and he examined himself. He says, there is nothing in me that caused God to do this to me. I didn't, I didn't deserve this. And Job's friends keep pushing it harder, and Job keeps uh, pressing in his innocence. And then we actually start to see Job starting to get angry with God. And we start to see Job actually... Um, uh, going to places that he really shouldn't go in claiming his innocence. Because Job is right in saying that, 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 um, that what he's reaping in his suffering is not a result of what he sowed, but he's wrong in saying that he's sinless. Because there's no human being that is sinless. Job says this to his friends in chapter 27, 5 through 6. He defends his innocence and he says, far be it from me to say that you're right. Friends, far be it from me to say that you're right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. There is no sin that I'm carrying around that I have not repented uh, from. 
So Job was truly a man whose conscience was clear. That's true. His suffering was not a direct result of any sin in his life. That's true. He wasn't sinless. That's true. But his suffering was not a result of anything he sowed. So as the story unfolds, we see Job wanting vindication from his friends' accusations. You see, very much Job is actually a defendant, and his friends are the prosecuting attorneys. And they're saying, Job, you are guilty. And evidence of your guilt is your suffering. No raise of hands, but how many of you felt that? When there's been something, some type of suffering in your life, marital conflict, a miscarriage, a death of another child, where you thought that there must be some type of suffering or some type of sin in you for God to do that to you. And I'm here to tell you today that that's not the way the Lord works. That's not the way the Lord works. That He does allow suffering, but it's not always a result of our sin. And He never punishes His children. He punished His Son so that His children, you and I, would never be punished. Now make no mistake that He does discipline us as a loving father disciplines his kids. But it's always for our good and for our benefit, not out of His wrath. Job is a powerful and persuasive type of Christ. He's an Old Testament type of Christ. David was a type of Christ. And we see that Job is a type of Christ because he suffered in his innocence. He longed for vindication and he yearned for a restoration to a lordship over his part of the world that got taken away. He prefigures the Lord Jesus Christ again and again. However, again and again, as we have listened to Job over the last 31 chapters, we have had to gasp, actually, at his audacity of accusing God of injustice. He's flat out said, God, you are not just, because I've I've been walking innocent and blameless, and you do this to me. It's not fair. And however sympathetic we might be to Job's plight, and how compassionate and we should be, actually. If there's any part of you where you are just, you are saying, you know what, Job is an idiot. He should not be responding this way to God. Um, that the Lord wants to grow you in compassion. So, so, however sympathetic you might be to his plight, and however strongly we believe that he is innocent, which we know is true because God said it was true in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Something in, uh, he, something in us hesitates when we hear him speaking to God the way that he's speaking to God. He's speaking to God with disrespect. God, Job put God on the stand, actually. Job got off the stand, and he put God on as the defendant. It is not true that Job is suffering because he sinned, but we're starting to see Job sin in the midst of his suffering. And that's a hard truth. Because we want to have compassion on people that are suffering. But at some point, there's a line in the sand. I don't know where that line is. But I think we're going we're gonna to see that line starting to become a little bit clearer today. These, um, these lies, these, this wrong thinking needs to be corrected. And Elihu begins the answering process that corrects Job. Job may be a type of Christ, but like all Old Testament 
types. He is conspicuous not only for the ways in which he is like Jesus, but also in the ways in which he falls short of Jesus. Job shows us a man that has a clear conscience. He uh, walks a life of obedient faith and love. He walked, as the apostle John says in John 1.1, he walks in the light. He doesn't walk in darkness. This is a good man. And yet when suffering comes, there are residues of sin within him that come to light. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17 that the, the heart of man is hopelessly deceitful. That even the believer's heart is deceitful. That there is hidden sin in all of our lives. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he, he says, For I am not aware of anything against myself. He's honestly examined himself and said, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. What Paul is saying, Paul knows he's a saint, that God sees him as not a sinner but a saint. That's how God sees you. That's true, brothers and sisters, that you are a saint, not a sinner. But what is false is that you don't sin. And that, that oftentimes um, God shows us our sin through suffering. The, the human heart can be compared to a container of water. See this here, that, that um, this muck on the bottom is our sin. This mud on the bottom is our sin. And um, when we're walking in repentance, when we're, we're walking uprightly, when, when everything is calm around us, when there's no suffering, um, it's actually pretty easy to walk with the Lord. It's actually pretty easy to walk in repentance. But when, but when the Lord gives us suffering, the, the ugliness of sin and disbelief comes to the top. And that's one of the primary tools of suffering is to help us see our sin, but not just leave us there, but so that we can be delivered from our affliction, so that we would know the nearness of God. So it is therefore possible to have a clear conscience and to walk in daily repentance of known sin, yet being a sinner at heart. And this is the case for Job. And it explains how he at the same time can be, uh, we, can, we, can affirm, um, we can affirm rebuking him, but we can also affirm his innocence. That, that he is walking in repentance, but there is sin underneath that the Lord wants to bring to the surface to expose his pride. So today we get a visit from an unexpected guest. And Job, for the most part, is done speaking, actually. We're going to hear from Job just a couple of times shortly, but he's no longer going to defend himself. And out of the nowhere, this young man appears and speaks to Job and to his friends. I want to um, read chapter 32, verses 1 through 10. Job will not be on the screen, so if you have an electronic device, iPad, phone, or um, an analog, ver analog version, pull it out and uh, just stay in Job. Um, we'll have a few other verses that we're going to go through, but those will be on the screen. So chapter 32, verses 1 through 10. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, that doesn't mean that he's a heavy drinker, of the family of Ram, doesn't mean he's from Fort Collins, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer. 
although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. That's respectful. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Berachel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young and in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak in many years, teach wisdom. He said, there's wisdom in older people. Let them speak first, and then I will open my mouth. Then he says, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, not the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. And can I ask a question? Was there a water bottle in those seats when you guys sat down by any chance? No? Oh, yeah. Would you chuck that to me? Chuck it. Come on. All the way. Oh, nice try. Oh, it hit my hands. Oh, it broke. So it's good. Yeah. So I had a, I had a receivers coach in high school named... The what? It's okay. I had a receivers coach in high school, and he said, Hardy, you got hands like feet. So it's... Uh, it's amazing how you remind, remind, I'm still suffering as a result of that. So, so the question is, is Elihu going to give us more of what the three friends gave? Is he going to basically pile on to the same advice that the three friends gave, or is he going to give new advice? We know that the advice of the friends was bad advice. We know it's garbage because we see God rebuke them in the end. But the question is, is that is Elihu's um, advice and counsel, admonishments, have more truth to it? I believe it does. I believe that, that Elihu's truth actually paves the way for the Lord, that he is an actual John the Baptist of sorts, that he is actually a prophet of the living God. Now, I've got to tell you this, that um, I look at, at commentaries um, after I've done my own study, and there's a lot of commentaries that would disagree with this. Um, they're wrong. No, I'm not going to say that. that uh, I would just submit this to you for your own study uh, as to who Elihu is, and is it the truth? Um, is he speaking the truth? So I want to give you five reasons that the author of Job wants us to believe the words of Elihu. Five reasons why the author of Job wants us to believe the words of Elihu. First, this is not a continuation or repetition of what the three friends said, but something new. He doesn't align himself with Job. He doesn't align himself with the three friends. He actually has burning anger for Job and burning anger for the three friends. He is impartial like God is impartial. The second reason, the main difference between Elihu and Job's friends is that Elihu claims to be speaking wisdom directly from the Lord rather than wisdom just because of old age. He actually says, he says, it's, it's God's spirit, the God Almighty who gives understanding. Therefore, basically what he's saying is because I'm a prophet, listen to me, verse 10. We also see if you, switch, if you go over to chapter 36, 2 through 4, he says this. It sounds like arrogance. Bear with me a little, Job. And I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I've got something to say to you on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. And what Elihu is saying is that he's not perfect, but he's saying that he is speaking on behalf of the perfect one. So listen up. That's what he's saying. Number three. 
Remember the 22 chapters of cycles of the conversations with uh, Eliphaz, then Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job? Um, Eliphaz got three chapters. Bildad got three chapters. Zophar got two chapters. Elijah's getting six chapters. Why would the author of Job give a man like Elihu six chapters if it's not truth, if it wasn't something new and something important? Number four reason, Job does not even try to argue with Elihu. Job argues for 22 chapters against the other three guys. He doesn't, he doesn't even argue. In fact, in chapter 33, verse 32, uh, Elihu says this to Job, if you have anything to say, answer me. Sure, nothing, crickets. Job does not even dare to answer Elihu. Um, the last reason in Job chapter 42, verse 7. This is the Lord speaking. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Timonite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. He calls out Job at some level, but he really hammers Eliphaz and the other two guys. If it was not truth, don't you think that the Lord would have corrected the theology at some point along the road? Verse 20, chapter 32. Job says, or uh, Eliphaz uh, uh, says, I must speak, I must open my lips, and I must answer. He could have sung along with Cat Stevens, I just can't keep it in. I've got to let it out. He's like the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 20 that says, Woe to me if I don't speak to others what God has spoken to me. He is a prophet of the living God. Chapter 33. What we see here is in verses 8 through 13, chapter 33, we actually see a summary of Job's sin, of Job's accusation. Let me read uh, verses 8 through 13, chapter 33. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I've heard the sounds of your words. You say I am pure without transgression. You say I'm clean, and there's no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will not answer He will answer none of man's words. So what Elihu does here is he identifies um, really three sins that Job has. Number one, the first sin is that Job says he's not guilty. He's not guilty. He didn't didn't sow sin that, that is resulting in this suffering, but he's wrong to say that he is sinless. He's wrong to say that he's not guilty. Um, The the second uh, sin that Elihu is calling out is that Job accuses God of targeting him unfairly. He's accusing God of injustice. He's accusing God of treating him like an enemy instead of a friend. And the, the third thing that he calls out is that God is silent. Where is God when I need him? Where is God? He's not just, I'm not guilty, and he doesn't respond to me. So I'm going to focus on two things, actually. The, the, the first one is um, well, let me emphasize this first of all. It's important to, to emphasize that Elihu will not, like the comforters, tell Job that he is suffering because he has sinned. I want to really hammer that in. 
Because there's some of you here today that still believe that, the, that your sin and the sin in your kid's life is somehow directed to you. I mean, your suffering and the suffering of your kids is somehow related to your sin. And that's just not the case. Yes, there is consequences for a mom and dad who are alcoholics that because of biological reasons, because of the way that the Lord made us, that your kids too might have an issue with alcohol. But he doesn't punish you or punish your sins, your, your kids, because of your sin. So Job addresses um, two of these concerns here in chapter 33, verses 14 through 22. He says, God is not silent. You're not listening. Here we see Elihu identify two ways in which God speaks to man. Two ways that God speaks to man. And I want to tell you this. This is before the word was written. As far as we know, there was no Bible in this time. So the question is, is how does Job hear from God? And Elihu's going to tell him that you, God isn't silent. He's actually speaking to you in two ways. And we see that in verses 14 through 22. Um, God says this. He says that I speak one way and in two. This means that God speaks in more than one way to his people. And the first way that he speaks to Job is in verses 14 through 16, is he speaks through our conscience. God has given humanity a conscience, believers and non-believers a conscience. And these references that we see here in these three verses um, to dreams and visions of the night and deep sleep and slumber are references to God speaking through our conscience. God has graciously given us a a conscience not to condemn us, not to punish us, but for one main reason, and that's found in verses 16 through 18. It's to open our ears so that he may turn us aside from our deeds, that he might keep us from running after our pride and to keep our soul from the pit and our life from the grave. You see, God speaks to our conscience in order to save us, to preserve us, to draw near to us not to punish and condemn us. The second way that God speaks is through suffering. Job isn't hearing God, and God is screaming at him, shouting at him through suffering. And this is, this is Elihu's main emphasis. We see it in verses 19 through 22. I'm going to read it to you, chapter 33. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. So that his life loathes bread, and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out now. His soul draws near the pit, and his life to those who bring death. This had to be deeply troubling to Job. He's suffering. And God tells him that, excuse me, Elihu tells him that God is speaking to you in your suffering. You see, Job all along has been protesting that God is not fair in his suffering, and he's been silent. And what Elihu says here is that God's voice is found in the suffering. Verse 19, man is chastened with pain on his bed, with unceasing complaint. What Elihu is saying is that God's voice seeks to turn us back from our ways. His voice keeps us humble and saves us. It's found in suffering. This is how we hear from God. This is how we know God. This is how we get water on our coat. Dirty water. Yuck. 
is that he brings suffering to expose sin in our life so that we know ourselves better, better and we know the character of God better. The voice of God is found in suffering and it exposes our need for a mediator. It exposes our need for a ransom. It exposes that we need someone beyond ourselves. We see that in verses 23 and 24. Elihu spoke first what C.S. Lewis would speak later. And let me read this quote to you. The human spirit will not begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. Now, error and sin both have this property, that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. They are masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. We can resist con- contentedly in our sins. Excuse me, we can rest contentedly in our sins. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf and dying world. And we see at the end of chapter 33 and verses 29 through 30, whether through, mis- whether through the misery of guilty conscience or through the pain of suffering, God does repeatedly and persistently speak with the goal, the primary goal of rescuing his people from the pit and giving them the light of life. God's gracious pur- purpose in suffering is not punishment. It's to remind us of our need for a mediator and a savior. Johnny Tata Erickson says this, God permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. God permits what he hates. God hates evil to achieve what he loves. Chapter 34 Elihu presses in on the question, is God fair? Is God fair? He focuses on the central issues of God's justice. Does God govern rightly and fairly? Does God govern rightly and fairly? And if so, if he does, can we be happy and confident about the goodness of his government? If you truly believe that God is good, God is loving, and he is sovereign, can you submit yourself and live joyfully and happily under his rule and whatever he determines to be best for you and I? I know it's not an easy question. In chapter 34, verse 10, Elihu says God cannot do wrong. In verses 12 through 15, he says God is good. And the argument that so often casts doubts in our hearts goes something like this. A good God wouldn't allow evil and suffering to exist. And an all-powerful God wouldn't allow it to exist. Evil exists so God, is, who is both all-powerful and completely good, cannot exist. Job has made the assessment that God must not be good. And Elihu is exposing his pride to that claim. Tim Keller puts it this way. If God is infinitely knowledgeable, why couldn't he have morally sufficient reasons for allowing evil that you and I can't think of? 
If you have a God infinite and powerful enough for you to be angry at for allowing evil, then you must at the same time have a God infinite enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing that evil. The belief that because we cannot think of something, God cannot think of it either, is plain fallacy. It's the mark of great pride and faith in one's mind rather than faith in the mind of God. Job must repent. In verses 31 through 33, chapter 34, Job must repent about what he said about God. And this repentance isn't a, a, a suggestion. It's a command. Elihu is saying to Job, put up your hands and admit that you said things that you shouldn't have said, even in your suffering. Chapter 35, verses 1 through 3, let me read that. And Elihu answered and said, do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God that you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? And he's repeating the question or the statement that was asked back in chapter 34, verse 9. It profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. And basically what's going on here is, is he's saying, uh, Job is saying that why should I delight in God? Why should I follow God? Why should I walk in innocence? Why should I walk in obedience if this is going to happen to me? Remember what Satan said to God? Does Job worship you for nothing? Of course he worships you. You've given him everything. Now Job is flipping the tables. Job is saying, God, I've done everything you've asked me to do. And now you've afflicted me with this? What does it profit a man to follow after God who's going to do this to me? As we look at verse 6 and 7, Elihu starts to answer it. If you have sinned, Job, what do you accomplish against God? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Our obedience is not for God's benefit. He doesn't need our help, and we can't hinder or thwart his purposes. Elihu isn't saying that God is indifferent to our wickedness or he's indifferent to our righteousness. We know that he doesn't think that because of everything, we know that he doesn't think that because of everything that he's been telling Job. He's saying that Job should turn back from his accusation against God that God is speaking to turn men back from their ways. Here's what, here's what Elihu is telling Job. If you think your anger against God uh, can somehow injure God, or if in your obedience you feel like God somehow obligates himself to you, you're wrong. You can't injure God. God does not have to repay you with good. Acts 17, 24 through 25. The God who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made of hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. You see, God is the one who is self-existent. He is the one who is ultimately free to do as he pleases, to work his goodwill and purposes. God needs nothing from us. And he is not obligated to us in any way. Everything we have is a gift. 
To worship God only because we think that somehow it obligates Him to make our lives go better and to give us happiness exposes that, exposes that we don't really worship Him at all. And I don't know if I said this in the first service or I said it just a little while ago, so I'm going to say it again. Um, and that is that, that if, if you have not experienced suffering at any level and, and you walk uprightly before God, you walk um, as a living sacrifice, you walk in repentance, praise be to God. But can I say this, that your faith, your worship has not been tested. It has not been tested until you've suffered. And um, I don't want you looking over your shoulder, looking for suffering to come. But God also doesn't want us to have our head in the sand thinking that suffering will never come. That suffering is a tool that God uses to answer the question, do we worship God for nothing? I'm going to skip over verses 9 through 16. Let's go to chapter 36, where we see that God is great. He teaches Job, Elihu teaches Job to not only think with his mind, but to feel with the whole person. You see, we try to comprehend everything with our mind. And I'm not, I'm not all that artistic. I don't feel that much. I'm pretty concrete. But I want to feel more. I want to be able to, um, there was a, um, uh, Don and uh, Nick Hager just had a little baby, Braden, and they brought it up here for, just for me to, to see it and to greet him. And, and the Lord just made me feel it, to see this baby that is a result of his creation. It's a result of his majesty. It's, it's a result of his greatness. And he teaches Job like we're being instructed to not only think with our mind, but to feel with the whole person. He talks about in 36 and 37 about the majestic cosmic power of God and how we see God's majesty and we see his justice and his goodness in all of creation. And because of that, we can trust him. In chapter 36, verse 7, it says that he does not re- withdraw his eyes from the righteous, that the, that the righteous, his children, have a sure inheritance. He inflicts us as his friends so that he would open our ears to his instruction. God is not, uh, Job is not God's enemy. Let me flip that around. God is not Job's enemy. God is Job's surgeon. God is Job's surgeon who is helping him be well and to be healthy. The psalmist says this in 119, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. When affliction comes, we learn more about ourselves, we learn more about God. Suffering that God brings into the life of his children comes not as a consuming fire, it comes as a refining fire. God brings suffering into our lives not to consume us, not to punish us, but to refine us so that we would draw near to Him. We'd look more like Him. He brings it to save us, not destroy us. Then in 36, verse 15, we see and experience God in adversity. It says this, this is probably the the pinnacle of Elihu's um, 
defense, his response to Job. He says this. He says, God delivers the afflicted by affliction. God delivers the afflicted by affliction. Has anybody ever fasted? If you have fasted, it's a spiritual discipline to actually bring about affliction on yourself. And um, if, you have, if you have fasted from food, we're getting ready to have a 24-hour prayer and fasting. I would encourage you that if you have never fasted, um, to fast with us for 24 hours. It's not going to make Jesus love you anymore. Um, it's not going to make you like super spiritual Christian. Um, you probably shouldn't post it on Facebook. But it is a way to um, know the nearness of God in ways, very few ways that we're able to do this. So fasting is a way of denying yourself something good in order to desire more of God. That's what fasting is. And when you do this, you know what you'll discover when you fast? Anybody that's fasted, what have you discovered? Sin. When I give up food for any period of time, I get cranky. I'm impatient. And what happens is that, and, and that's, what, that's what suffering and affliction does. It's, there's things that are way down inside of me that I didn't know were there. So when God causes suffering and affliction in our life, it is a, a type of fasting. This was a new insight and perhaps the most helpful thing that Elihu said. He went beyond all that had been said about God. God's using suffering to chasten and bring about repentance. He was saying that God uses suffering to open our ears and to draw us to himself for comfort and healing. But as long as Job kept complaining, he was turning to iniquity rather than drawing near to God in his suffering. That God is bringing about a fast in our life when he takes things from us in the way of suffering. He wants to show us the ugliness in our hearts. He wants us to draw near. He delivers the afflicted by affliction. And then verse 26, chapter 36 Elihu says, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. And even though we have a personal relationship with him, we can never know him fully. We can never fully comprehend him. And then chapter 37, verse 5 says, God does great things that we cannot comprehend. And he talks about, he, he talks about all the gifts that God gives that we see brings abundance but also brings calamity. One of the things he talks about is the rain. What would this world be like without dew and rain? We'd have no food. But it also destroys communities. So his, his ways are unsearchable. He does great things, verse 5, chapter 37, that we can't comprehend. Then at the end of chapter 37, Elihu says this, the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. He was great in justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate the friends of Job do not have a view of God being a redeemer, of being a sanctifier, and of being a surgeon. They have a, a, a view of God being having a, a retribution theology that is angry and wrathful. And God is angry and wrathful, and that's why he killed Jesus, so that you and I would never have to suffer his wrath and his punishment. One day, there will be a reckoning. 
for those who have yet to be justified by faith. And those, there will be some who will experience the wrath of God. If you're here today and you don't know God's love and His forgiveness, that you have yet to confess to Him and agree with Him that you are a sinner deserving eternal separation from God, and if you have yet to put your faith and trust in His finished work on the cross, I beg you, do it. I'm not going to ask you to say a prayer. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to ask you to simply look inside and ask, God, am I a sinner deserving eternal separation from you? And God, would you forgive me for all my sins? And I will, in return, live for you the rest of my days. Not perfectly, because there's only one perfect person to ever walk the planet, and that was Jesus. In the kingdom of God, what seems a bad circumstance is ultimately good. The supreme instance of this is the death of Jesus Christ on Good Friday that we're going to observe in just a few weeks. And on that Good Friday we saw an apparent catastrophe become the means by which the sin of the world was taken away. In some, the book of Job shows us in outline form a greater Job, a one who suffered even more deeply than this Old Testament saint, in whom God's purposes were furthered even more deeply, one who holds our hand as his leads us, and he does this through his own pain. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the cross. Lord Jesus says in Hebrews that you were um, tempted and you suffered in, any, in, in every way, that you can sympathize with our weaknesses. And Lord, we know that we live in a fallen world. Um, we know that this world is wrought with evil. And we know, Lord, that you're not the author of evil, but we do know that you somehow use evil to accomplish your good will and purposes. And Lord, we thank you that the ultimate uh, evil was conquered on the cross of Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you who knew no sin, you the innocent and blameless one, took all of our sin the guilt of it, the shame of it, the penalty of it so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And I thank you, Lord, that even though we've got this, this sin nature that we still, this flesh that we battle with, we thank you that you no longer see us as sinners, that you see us as saints. And God, I pray that we would each be able to get to a point, God, I'm still in process that we would be able to thank you and praise you for suffering because we know that it produces righteousness in us. That allows us to see um, your character and your loving kindness. And it allows us to see you as our deliverer in ways that we've never experienced before. So God, we don't ask for suffering. We thank you for your suffering in our place. But God, we do pray that you would prepare us for suffering. 
And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for these words that you said that in this trouble there will be world, in this world there will be trouble, that we can take heart because you have overcome the world. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and continue worship.